That's true, isn't it? We need him. And uh, I don't think there's a time I walk up these stairs where I'm not saying those words. Saying, Lord, I need you right now. And, uh, you know, just the privilege of sharing God's word is amazing. But it's, it's a heavy responsibility, too. And, uh, and every time I get up to share God's word, I just can't help but think, Lord, I need you. And because it's, it, it, we don't want to slip into me giving my messages. It's about God's message and just sharing what he has for us today. Amen? You know, uh, I'm excited to see a great number of people out today, and I'm just excited to be a part of this church. And uh, just seeing how the Lord has led us here has been an exciting thing. For, for us to grow in Christ, I think there are three things we have to keep in mind, uh, really three levels of relationship. One is unity, I'll just call it unity. The next one is community, and the other is intimacy. And so it's good to have everyone together like this, because uh, there's unity when we all come together, amen? Just that sense of realizing we're worshiping the same God together. That sense of community uh, where you start getting to know people. It's hard to do that in a group this size, but that's why we have connection groups. And uh, this fall we'll be having some, uh, some of the connections groups uh, kick back into full swing. And so uh, uh, I just want to let you know, if you're interested in working in a small group, or if you're not sure where to go into a small group, talk to, uh, to Doug Carley or to myself and we'll help you get connected to that. And uh, also, if, you're, if you are running a small group, we'll be getting together. We'll be planning a meeting to get together and start planning for the fall. That's an exciting time, too. And then also, the third level is that level of intimacy, where you build relationships with each other, close enough relationships where you can confront each other when you need it or encourage each other when you need it. And so I, I, I would pray that you'd be involved in, in, in relationships with the other parts of this body of, of Christ in all three levels. Amen? Well, we've been studying together uh, the, the book of Joshua. We're going, we're taking this journey with Joshua, and it's it's been exciting for me. Uh, just kind of to review for the last couple of weeks, we learned that even though there's this leadership change right as they're going through this transition, getting ready to enter the promised land, there's this leadership change, and it might seem to a lot of the people that everything's changing over. There are some constants, and that God is constant. His promises are constant. His presence. Uh, is constant, and his power to protect them was constant, and, and that what an exciting thing. Last week, we talked about the key to success, not like the world offers, but the type of success that God offers, and what was the key to su- success? To be grounded in what? In God's word. Not to add anything to it, uh, not to take anything away from it, not to put our preferences above God's word, not to put the traditions above God's word, but to let God's word be the supreme authority in our lives. So I hope and pray that you've been in God's Word more than just from Sunday to Sunday, but throughout the week, too. Um, as we read the, uh, the passage in Joshua 1 coming up, uh, we'll be continuing in, in uh, verses uh, 10 through 18. We're going to be able, to, we're going to really sense this excitement that now, they've, after spending 40 years in the wilderness, now they're getting ready to enter the promised land. And we're going to sense that excitement. Um, it's a great time. And, and I've titled today's, uh, today's message, Lessons from the Past, Preparations for the Future. Because as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, we're going to see some lessons that this generation had learned. Lessons from the past, but it's going to prepare them for the future of blessing that God has in, in, uh, in store for them. So let's, uh, let's begin by reading in Joshua chapter 1, starting in verse 10, and we'll read the first two verses together. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp, and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days 
you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Exciting words after 40 years of waiting, right? We're getting ready, and in three days, we're going to cross into the promised land. What, what an ad, ad, uh, I almost said ambiente of my Spanish, just because I had a Spanish conversation this morning with someone, and so my mind went back to Spanish. But the, the uh, what's the word, ambiance, I guess you could say, uh, that, that of excitement that's going on. And, uh, and so it's an exciting time. In fact, the, the language here, the, where, uh, where he says, in three days, or within three days you will cross over this Jordan, that, that language actually goes all the way back to Moses when he was saying, three days, you're going to end all of this slavery, and we're going to leave Egypt. And so what an exciting time there. And so when they hear these words, it's, it's bringing some memories backwards that go all the way back to, ooh, three days they were told, and we're going to leave Egypt, leave slavery. Now we're being told three days we're going to enter the promised land. Uh, that's an exciting thing. Um, let's continue in verse 12. We'll read verses 12 through 18. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the tribe of Men, and, um, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your, your uh, brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them, until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses the, the Lord's servant gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. So they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you, and he, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. Now, it's interesting. We have to really understand some of the background history to understand what's going on here. Why is, why is Joshua addressing Two and a half tribes. He's, uh, as we saw in verse uh, 12, he's addressing the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. This just seems kind of an odd uh, passage if we don't understand some of the background. Uh, so we have to take a little bit uh, of a look uh, to see what's going on. So let's uh, just kind of get an understanding where, uh, where we're at in the geography. Egypt is where they, they spent 450 years in slavery. And, uh, and to give a little understanding... They, the, the previous generation had seen the plagues of Egypt. They, sh- they saw God perform his power over all of the Egyptian gods. What an amazing thing to see. And then, as you, as you know the story, they crossed the Red Sea. We don't know exactly where they crossed the, street, the Red Sea. It could have been further south than that. That's really, but it's not important. But we, see, we see how they crossed the Red Sea in a miraculous way. And, uh, but then we come to Kadesh Barnea. Is that me? We come to Kadesh Barnea. And if you remember the story, um, they sent 12 spies into the land. Now, the, the purpose of the spies was not to decide whether or not to go into the land. God had already promised them the land. They just went in to spy out the land to see how good is it, to see what's going to happen and, and, uh, and what they're going to, to experience. But instead, they ended up voting. They weren't even supposed to have a vote. And do you remember how that vote went? 
10 of them said, thumbs down. All of them, by the way, all 12 said, this is beautiful. It is exactly as God said it would be. But 10 of them said, we can't go in there. Some of the reasons, they said, well, they have fortified cities. They have trained soldiers. We've been in the desert for 40 years. We have tents. Uh, They said that there are giants in the land. There were no giants among the Israelites. Now, from a human perspective, can you understand those 10 people? Looking at it purely from a human perspective, I get it. It makes sense. But looking at it from God's perspective, who had just revealed the 10 plagues, and here they are, they cross the Red Sea, they come here 10 saying no, that's not a good sign. There was an exception to that. There were two who voted thumbs up. And who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Two said, it's beautiful land, and the Lord's given it to us. It's ours. Let's go take it. Uh, This is exciting. But the people followed the ten instead of the two. They followed more of a democratic method than following a theocratic method. Theocracy meaning a God-ruled system of government. They didn't follow God. They followed the majority. And God was upset. And so at this point, we find 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Uh, It's important to understand that. So before we understand what lessons that this new generation needed to learn, we kind of have to go back and see what lessons did the previous generation fail in so that we understand what was going on. So what was the purpose of those, of those 40 years? I mean, uh, as you, I don't know if you can see, but on the, in the middle of this map up here, it says, you are here. And then it just shows squiggly lines everywhere with Egypt somewhere over there to the left. <laughs> and so they're wandering for 40 years. And as you can imagine... Uh, it, it was probably a difficult time because you'd see the presence of God. It was over the, the tabernacle, but sometimes the tabernacle would move and we'd say, okay, we're getting ready to go. And we'd have to pack up all our things and we'd follow the presence of God. But where are we going? Well, to another piece of desert. We're not going anywhere. How do you feel? But God would take them because there were lessons they needed to learn along the way. He was teaching them how to he was teaching them those things so that they would be ready to enter the promised land, which is what we're getting into in, Gen- in, in uh, Joshua chapter 1. So uh, a couple of lessons he was uh, trying to teach. Them. Number one, he was, he was uh, punishing uh, the, the faithless generation. Now we're going to come back to Joshua 1 uh, multiple times. So keep a, keep a finger or a piece of paper or a bulletin, something in Joshua chapter 1. But let's go back uh, for a moment to, to see this in the history, all the way to Numbers chapter 32. I'm sorry, Numbers 14. We will get to Numbers 32 later. Numbers 14, uh, starting in verse 11. I'll give you a moment to get there. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses... Uh, just a little back. This is when they decided not to go into the promised land. They followed the, the ten spies instead of the two. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me? With all the signs which I, which I have performed among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Let's just stop there for a second. One key thing that we don't quite see in English there is when he says, I will make of you a great nation... The word you there is singular. Who's the Lord talking to? Moses. Okay. He 
He's not saying, I'm going to make of you, the nation, a great nation. He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to start over and just take you, Moses, and make a great nation out of you. Did you see the level of frustration that God had at this point? I mean, it's hard to imagine that God frustrated, but you know what? Uh, there's, there's, a, a, there's a desire that God, he loves us so much, he wants us to see us obey. And when we don't, it hurts him. You think about that. Um, and Moses said, verse 13, said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your might, you brought these people up from among them. And they, they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. And that you, Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands above them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, then the nations will have heard of your fame. They will speak, saying... Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them. Therefore, he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great. Just as you have spoken, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity, excuse me, iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is bargaining with God. Isn't that an amazing story when you think about it? Here we have a man who's bargaining with God. And does God really already know what he's going to do? Yes, he does. So we see God, in a sense, coming down in this relational sense. He's coming down to Moses' level. He already knows what he's going to do. He knows how he's going to save his people. But he comes down to this level so that he can have this interaction with Moses. And, and Which, by the way, God loves interaction with his people. In fact, we have, we have uh, prophe- uh, prophecies. We have things where people say, Lord, how long will we have to wait for you? It's almost complaining, in a sense. But it's inspired by God and it's in his word because he wants us to share even our frustrations sometimes. Uh, but we see that with, with Moses, and we see Moses uh, pleading for the life of Israel. And this is what God uh, concludes in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness have put me to the test now these ten times and have not uh, uh, heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. See what God was doing with the 40 years? Saying, this is a faithless generation. I forgive them. We're not talking about losing salvation. Once you're saved, you're saved. Amen? Amen. And uh, that, that will never change. We're not talking about that. But because of their continual lack of faith, because of their continual disobedience, God was saying, I am going to remove from them the privilege of receiving all of the blessing that they could have had. And isn't that true for us so many times? Oh, we're saved, we know we're saved, and we have a relationship with God, but we, sometimes we're stubborn. God calls Israel stiff-necked multiple times in, in Scripture. Stubborn, and, we get, and we're stubborn in our sins, and we continue in our sins, and we lose out on so many blessings that God has for us, and He just wants us to experience them. Amen? But we do, we fall into sin and, and we miss those opportunities. And God is saying uh, that, that uh, part of the purpose here is to punish this faithless 
generation. But that wasn't the only purpose of the 40 years. The second purpose was to raise up a faithful generation. Let's continue in the same chapter in Numbers uh, 14, but let's, let's uh, skip ahead to verse 29. God is still speaking with Moses, and he said, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. If there was an age limit, those who are 20 and above, all of them, he said, are going to die in the desert. But who does, that, who does that leave? The next generation. Everyone that was 20 or below, they saw God do his work. They saw God do these amazing things. They saw their parents fail even. And God's saying, I'm going to do something with this special generation. Let's continue to read verse 31. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years. And you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil generation who gather together against me. In the wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. So we see that um, God was punishing the faithless generation, but he was also raising up a faithful generation to learn from, the, from them. So that leads us to the question, what lessons did this new generation have to learn that were so important before entering the promised land? What were they? And I think we find them in the text of today, uh, Joshua 1. Let's go back to Joshua 1.12. And take a second look at what's going on here. Verse 12, And, and to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God has given you rest and is giving you this land. A little bit of background information uh, on this. Um, and, and for that, we'll keep your finger in Joshua 1, but we'll, now we'll go to Numbers 32, where I accidentally directed you the first time. If we look at Numbers 32, verses 1 through 5, we find out what he's talking about and why he's talking to just two and a half tribes here. Now to the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, or, uh, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazar and the land of Gilead that needed the region, or, or that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Divan, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, and a list of other names, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over to the Jordan. So basically, if we look at the land, uh, we have Egypt over here uh, that's in that green section. You can see where the Nile River is. You can see the Red Sea there. And then if you follow up the little finger of the Red Sea, you can see the Dead Sea. There's the Jordan River. And at the top, you can see the Sea of Galilee, which is my favorite place in this picture. Because that's where I asked Monica to marry me. So <laughs> throw that in there. So. And, uh, 
And so, uh, so th that's, that's the promised land. But east of the Jordan River was not necessarily part of the promised land. And, uh, uh, but you had two and a half tribes that said, this is perfect land for livestock. And so you had Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. They said, you know, this is, this is a better land for us. We would like to just stay in this land because why cross the Jordan when you've got everything right here? Now, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Um, what might you be thinking if you're not from the tribe of Reuben, Gad, or Manasseh? Yeah, these guys are just trying to get out of the hard work. I mean, there aren't, there aren't giants here. There aren't, uh, uh, there aren't fortified cities. There aren't any of those things. And so now, they're just trying to get out of, this, out of work. And can, you can imagine the type of split that that could have caused. Uh, well, let's look and see what happened in verse 6. Of uh, Numbers 32. It says, And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel. So that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he swore on oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenazite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And so uh, uh, or what we see here, then, is that, that Moses recognized this is, it's not good to separate everybody. And if we were to skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 3, we won't have to read it. But uh, what we find that the solution was, Mo Moses said, don't split up the people of Israel. But you can leave the, the women and the children in the promised land, but all the men have to cross the Jordan with everybody else. And the men, anyone who's able to fight, they have to cross over with the rest of their brothers. And not until everyone has their land can they go back. That really brings us to the first of two major lessons that we're talking about today. There are two lessons, and the first one really is the lesson of unity. The lesson of unity. Uh, what we find here is, is the simple principle that we can accomplish more when we work together. Yeah. Isn't that true? When some of the people would want to go one way and some of the people would want to go another way, and they keep pulling in their separate directions, what does that do? That pulls the people of God apart. Moses saw that, and under command of God, under inspiration of God, he commanded them not to do that. He commanded them to stick together and to work together. It's the value of unity. It is that important to God. Um, when you think about it, too, uh, Jesus emphasized this concept. When you think to, the, to his last prayer on earth for us, he was praying for the elect. He was praying for the future believers, everyone who would come to know him. And he, this is what he wrote. He, he wrote, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You see the connection, the closeness, the unity between Jesus and the Father. Verse 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, 
that they may be, what's the next word? One. As we are. He's saying the type of unity that he wanted amongst his believers was the same type of unity that exists in the Trinity itself. Imagine that. He's saying that's the type, that's the type of unity I want for everybody. He was praying for our unity. Now, I want to be careful to, to balance this, uh, this out with what we call the doctrine of separation. Is there a time to separate? Yes, there is. In fact, it's not wise to, in the name of unity, put wolves and sheep together, right? That's one of the examples that Jesus gives us. You don't put a wolf in the sheep pen and call it a sheep, right? That's where we get the whole expression of uh, 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 wolf in sheep's clothing, right? So yes, we have to call sin, sin. We have to call believer, believer, and and if someone is not a believer, then, then we're not going to try and convince them that they are a believer or that their eternal destiny is secure if they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Amen? So that's, that's the doctrine of separation. But this is, this is the counterpart to that, that we have to make sure we hold these in balance, and that is the doctrine of unity. That we should have a zeal for getting along with each other, helping each other out, or in this case, even... Uh, Fighting each other's battles. Part of unity means that we owe it to each other to fight each other's battles. That's part of unity. We don't say, well, you know what? We're content with this over here. And my brother over here, he still has a lot of battles left before he gets what he needs. So I'm just going to stay here, let him take care of himself, and I'll take care of me. Um, That's not how Christianity works. Amen? Instead, we see our brothers fighting a battle. And when when we do, what should we do? We go and we, we fight with them. And when, when he's got his things in order, then we can come back and enjoy the things that the Lord has blessed us with. That's the principle, it's the lesson of unity. And that's the big question, uh, one of the big questions that I think we have to ask, and if we're going to apply God's word and be grounded in God's word, is how committed am I to unity? Am I willing to put some of my own things, my, my selfish desires, my selfish needs, my selfish preferences, am I willing to put those down because I want to resolve relationship? with my brother or sister in Christ. And that our relationships here should be so important that we're willing to, to humble ourselves and go out of our way to make that relationship right. It's kind of like a family. If, if, uh, if you have a, an argument with your brother or sister, like, the likelihood is that you're going to work it out. Why? It's your brother or sister. Eventually, over time. Now, there are some adults who act like children and they never get along with their brothers and sisters, but... Typically, even though I've had probably some of my worst arguments with my brother Steve or my brother Tom, I love my brother Steve and I love my brother Tom, and we're actually very close to this day. Why? Because they're family. And as a spiritual family, we ought to have that same sense of unity. We work things out. If we don't, if we don't agree with each other, if we have a problem with each other, we work it out. Why? Because there's this zeal for unity. And when, when God's people are unified, it's amazing what, what God does with them. Just read the book of Acts and look for the times where it says they were in one of, in, or they were in of one accord. Look for those words and then see what happens. You'll be happily surprised. God does amazing things when his people are unified. Amen? And so that is an exciting thing. The big question now is, did the, the second generation, did the generation of Joshua learn this lesson? Let's go back to, to Joshua 1 and, and find out. Let's take a look at verse 16. So they answered Joshua saying, All that you command us, 
we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as, as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Did they learn the lesson? They sure did. The previous generation, were they allowed to enter the promised land? No. Because they didn't have that lesson down. But now we have a new generation. And God succeeded. He always does. God succeeded in raising up a faithful generation. Because now they had learned the lesson of unity. And even those who were farmers and they wanted their, their cattle and their livestock on the east side of the Jordan said, We're going to cross. And we're going to fight those battles with you. Can you imagine how that encouraged the souls of everyone who was getting ready to go into battle? When people have the choice not to go and they're saying, we're going with you. That, that gives you courage, doesn't it? And, uh, and what a thing to see unity in action. They got the lesson. But as we get into verses 16 through 18, we, we actually begin to step into that set, the second lesson. Um, and we find, well, I'm going to call it a lesson of authority. A lesson of authority. So, uh, let's uh, read the verses again. Uh, verse 16, so, that, so they answered Joshua, saying, All that you command us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we hated Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. In the same way that we followed Moses, we're going to follow you. This is a concept of submitting to, to God's given authorities. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that the previous generation would be able to say that? I think in a sense they could, because if they said, yeah, we're going to follow you the same way we followed Moses, how well did they follow Moses? Right? Now this generation can say that, because they had followed Moses. They followed him in the desert. But the previous generation, do you think they gave Moses any grief? And I think so. In fact, I'm just going to go through a brief history um, as we look at, at, uh, at, at that in, in just a moment. But I, but I want you to keep these principles in mind as we go into this history. First... We, uh, and we see this repeated in Romans 13, uh, where Paul wrote, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. So I want you to understand, this is talking about the authorities that God has put in place. It doesn't necessarily just mean church authority or Israelite authority. All the authorities that God puts in place. It says, For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Or we find uh, uh, in Hebrews 13, where it's, where it's applied to church authority. Where it says, obey, which is a strong word, obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, for they watch uh, out for your souls as those who must give an account. That's, an, that's a challenge for me and for the other pastors and those who have leadership positions in the church. We'll be, we will have to give account for those that God has entrusted to us. It says, but let them do so with joy and, uh, and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, wherever, whoever our authorities are, our job is to make their job easy. That's an interesting concept when you think about it. This concept of authority that God is going to judge me on how easy I made it for those above me. And how many of you have authorities? Okay. Yeah, we all do. Right? So all of us, we, we're going to be judged by, by that. It's this concept of authority um, that we find in both Testaments. First Peter 2 uh, is another one that says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or the governors, as to those who are sent by him. For the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So there's this concept of authority. Now let's go back to, uh, to Exodus chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to fly through this because I think you're familiar with the stories. 
But I want us to look at the history of the previous generation and see how well they did in the area of authority. In Exodus 5, um, Moses confronts Pharaoh. You remember that, right? God gave him the abilities. Moses confronts Pharaoh. And does Pharaoh respond properly? No. Instead, he increases the workload of all of the, the Israelite slaves. How did the Israelites respond to God's appointed man? They blamed Moses and Aaron. They got mad at him. They blamed him. Uh, in Exodus 15, Moses leads them across the Red Sea. After seeing the, the plagues, Moses leads them across the Red Sea, splits it wide open. They walk across on dry land. The Egyptians follow, which is probably the, 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 not the smartest military decision ever made in history. They follow them, and then God just closes up the water, destroys the Egyptian army all in one shot. And, uh, and they get across with the water on the other side, bitter. And so what do they do? The Israelites blame Moses and Aaron. Well, take one chapter later. Uh, Moses makes the, the bitter water sweet. But there's not enough food. So what do they do? The Israelites blame Moses and Aaron. Are you starting to see a pattern? <laughs> um, in Exodus 17, one chapter later, um, Moses receives bread from heaven to fill them. He's, he receives the bread. Um, but there's not enough water. It's sweet, but there's now there's not enough water. Um, so the Israelites blame Moses and Aaron. In Exodus 32, uh, Moses receives the Ten Commandments. He goes up into the mountain of God, and they can see lightning. They see things going on. They can see what's going on. And while Moses is up there receiving the Ten Commandments, carved by the finger of God, to bring down to them, what are they doing? They're collecting earrings, collecting watches, whatever they can do. And they fashion a false god in the form of a um, becerro de oro. Um, golden calf. Sorry, my mind is in Spanish today. And, uh, and they, they fashion this false image of God. And, uh, uh, and they say to themselves, why? What was their excuse for doing this? Oh, it's taking too long. It's been up there 40 days. And uh, so they say, decided it's taking too long. And this time Aaron and the Israelites blame Moses. Aaron actually jumps into the process. <coughs> Starts blaming Moses. Numbers 11. Moses relays to them the Levitical laws. He gives them the laws of how do you re restore your relationship with God using the tabernacle. And they say, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. You get that feeling, that sensation of just complaining. Oh, it's just too hard. God's telling them how to restore a relationship with the Creator after all they had done. And they say, no, oh, it's too hard. We don't have to, we're going to have to take a day off every week. Oh, man. How tough. How, did, how many of you would be happy if your boss said, take an extra day off per week and I'll pay you a couple extra days worth? How many of you would be happy about that? Yeah. They found a way to complain about that. Think about that. They're complaining for the day off and all this kind of stuff. And uh, so what do they do? They blamed Moses. They blamed Aaron. In Numbers 12, even the leadership falls into it. Aaron and Miriam are jealous because God speaks face to face with, with Moses. So they're jealous of him for that. And with them, he only speaks to them in a, in a, the, the prophetic manner. And, uh, and so they start a rebellion against Moses. And it just goes on and on. Numbers 13 and 14, Moses sends the spies into the land of Canaan. The enemies are intimidating. So they, what do they do? They blame Aaron and Moses. Then we find in the very next uh, chapters there, Moses tells them about the 40-year punishment. He says, all right, this is what God has said. And uh, so Korah, 250 elders, rebel. 
say, no, we're going to go into the promised land anyway, even without God's blessing. Smart idea. <laughs> and, uh, and so the Lord swallows them up. I mean, if there's anything I can't even imagine how they would blame Moses and Aaron, but what do they do? They blame Moses and Aaron. As if Moses and Aaron had control over the earth, swallowing up the enemies of God in the camp. You get this idea. They had problem after problem. And, uh, uh, and then the last one I'm going to share is just where God destroys their enemies, even in the journey. God destroys their enemies, but they say the journey is just taking too long. And so God sends serpents to bring them back on track. What do they do? They blame Moses. They blame Aaron. The previous generation did not grasp the concept of submission to authority. It was something that they failed at. We've got to submit ourselves to, to God-given authorities. Honestly, this is probably the hardest part for me to preach because being in some type of authority, it would be very easy for me to just kind of skip over some of this. It would be very easy to do. But I learned last week, and was reminded last week, we don't add or take away anything from scriptures. Amen? So I'm going to preach the word whether it's comfortable or not for me. But that's the way, it, 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 that's what God says. We need to be submissive to our God-given authorities. What we find here, though, is that there is a stipulation. And this is a message for me, too, but and for any of us that are involved in any type of, of leadership in the church, uh, there's a stipulation there. Let's look back um, at verse, um, verse 17. It said, Just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you. As he was with Moses. What was the one stipulation for them following him? That there was evidence of the presence of God. Moses, we will follow you if you're following God. The moment you step across that line and you're not, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, they're saying that to Joshua. I said Moses, didn't I? But they're saying, Joshua, we will follow you as long as you're following God. And last week we talked a little bit about what was the presence of God? It was determined by what? We, that was, there was a, if, they wanted, if Joshua wanted to have the presence of God in his life, what did he have to do? Obey the word, not stray to the right or to the left. So really, the presence of God is evidenced by obedience to the word of God. And so as our authorities are obedient to the word of God, then guess what? We should submit to those authorities. And as authorities, we need to make sure that we are obedient to God's word. It doesn't matter what kind of human wisdom a person might have. It's worth nothing if we're not being obedient to God's word. The, 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 the concept here is, is that if we follow all the black and white things, uh, as, as leaders, uh, the black and white means all, if we avoid the things that God says to avoid, and we do the things that God says to do, then all of those gray areas, the things that, we are, that aren't necessarily covered in Scripture, like it doesn't say uh, how many times we meet in a week, it doesn't say what time we meet, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't have those, those kind of, all those things. If we're following the black and the white, we're not going to the right or the left of God's word, then God is going to direct us through the rest of that. Do we believe that? But oftentimes it's those kinds of issues that separate churches and separate people, and they start fights over that. And uh, uh, I may have even mentioned this before, but when uh, my home church, Evangel Baptist Church in Taylor, Michigan, was, was being built, they built this beautiful auditorium. The builder said, I will help you build this, and I will do it at a great cost, because he, he loved the Lord too. He says, but with one stipulation, and that is I get to choose all of the colors. And we said, well, why is that? He said, I have been in too many churches where they divided 
over the colors of the carpet and the wall and the paint they put on their building. Man, my heart sank when I heard that. I felt, felt like, what kind of a testimony is that? And, and he said, oh, it's, it became politics. And, and, well, you're just letting him choose the color because he plays golf with the pastor. And he, crazy things. And, and, and I realized those churches didn't understand the concept of unity and they didn't understand the concepts of authority. But if you have those two together, what an amazing, what an amazing thing. Too many times I think we, judged our, our, we judge our leaders based on our preferences instead of the presence of God in their lives. Isn't that true? And we become judges and we look at, at all of our authorities. And I'm not just talking about pastoral authority. or what, I'm talking about all of our leaders that God has put. And we look at them and say, I would rather have this or I'd rather have that. And, and, uh, and we look at those things instead of saying, well, is there evidence of the presence of God in their lives? And if so, then I'll put my preferences aside. I'll put my, my things aside uh, for the sake of unity in the church. So the big question then is, did the new generation understand this lesson of authority as well? And that's where we go right back to 16. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And as we read over the next few weeks, we're going to see that Gad, or half the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, they did exactly as they said. And they crossed over and they fought the battles together. They learned the lesson of, of uh, unity. They learned the lesson of authority as they listened to what Joshua had told them to do. And uh, so what about you? That's the big question for today. What about you? Are you committed to unity? Amen. Is that, is that uh, something that you are committed to to say, you know what, I'm willing to, to put, put aside myself for the sake of something greater. This is God's church. Amen? And am I willing to put, put aside some of my things for the sake of God's church? Am I willing to fight battles that aren't necessarily mine, but they're ours? Am I willing to do that? And are you willing to submit to authority? Not just the lead pastor. But in all the areas, we have, we have deacons with uh, authority in their areas. We have, we have uh, children's leaders. We have, uh, we have leaders. And all. Are we willing to submit to those authorities and say... Yeah, we'll, we'll follow. For the sake of unity, we're going to submit to authorities so that we're all moving in the same direction. Are you willing to do that? Because if the answer to those questions is yes, I've got great news for you. Just as God was, was ready to take his people, Israel, into the promised land, I have no doubt in my mind that God has some incredible, amazing things in store for us as a church. If we're willing to say, it's not about me, it's about what God's going to do. Amen? All right, let's, let's, uh, let's pray as we close. Let's stand as we pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, as I've been studying this passage all week, you've convicted me in many ways. And Lord, I just pray that today would mark a day where all of us are unified. We're moving in the same direction. As we love each other, we fight each other's battles. And we submit to the authorities that you've placed on all the little things. And I pray too for the leadership. I pray for the pastors, the deacons, and everyone that involved in, in leadership, Lord. Help us to be obedient to your word. So that together we can move in one direction, knowing that that direction is the direction 
you've brought us. Lord, there might be some today who have come in to, as well and they don't know you personally. And so understanding the presence of God and understanding the blessings that you have for us might sound like a foreign language to them. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you personally, they would come talk to me even as we sing. I'll wait here in the, I'll wait up here in the front for anyone who would be interested in talking to know, to, to know how they could know from God's word. How they could have a relationship with you, God. And Lord, if there's any of us who here who we know we're saved, but we've missed out on some of the blessings that you have for us because we haven't learned some of these lessons. Lord, may it not be too late as it was in the generation of Moses. Lord, raise up a generation of Joshua right here in this church. A generation that says we will go fight each other's battles. We will follow God's word. We won't stray from it to the right or to the left. So we can see the amazing things that you have in store for us. Lord, that is my prayer for my life. That's my prayer for my family. That's my prayer for my church family too, Lord. I pray this knowing that you can do some great things way beyond what, what I could even imagine or dream. And that's what I pray for for us today too, Lord. But it takes us dedicating our lives to you. And so as we sing, we offer our lives to you in obedience to, to you. We pray this in Christ's name.